Gracious Heavenly Father, if uh, what we were about to do right now was receive a clever speech to make us more moral people, we would all be wasting our time. I pray that um, the preaching of your word would be empowered by your Holy Spirit as the proclamation of the saving gospel of Jesus, that we would not be sufficient in and of ourselves, but that we would be able to sing with our whole hearts all the time, we need thee, we need Christ, all of Christ and only Christ. And may we rest in him through what we learn in his word. May everything point to him and exalt him, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. You might remember uh, that the structure of Isaiah, it follows generally what, what we consider to be three books, three major parts of Isaiah. And we, we uh, label those mainly uh, based upon what they say about Jesus, how they point to the Messiah. The first we call the book of the king as it looks forward to Jesus sitting on the throne of David. The second we call the book of the servant because it looks largely at Jesus' death and resurrection. And this, this third part of Isaiah that we're in now, we generally call the book of the conqueror. And uh, you've probably seen as we move forward that Isaiah has been speaking to the sin, the horrible state of this people. And he's been doing that as he's been building up to this wonderful revelation of the redeemer, the conqueror who will come and fulfill God's promises in just this absolutely wonderful passage, which we will look at next week. But this week... Isaiah is going to finish that final note, preparing these, this people to hear of the coming conqueror. And as we can see, the, the main thing that uh, Isaiah is going to bring about, that God is bringing about through Isaiah in this passage, is working repentance in the people of Judah, preparing them for this good news that the Redeemer will certainly come to save repentant sinners. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58, and we'll be reading verse 1 right to 59, um, 13, our entire passage this morning. Isaiah 58, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness, that did not forsake the judgment of their God. And they ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you have seen it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day you fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself, is, is it to bow down his head like a reed? To spread sackcloth and ashes under him, will you call that a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go forth before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. 
Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and spreading wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly, they rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those. In full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan like like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. This is the word of the Lord. We can see that this prophecy from Isaiah is given in response to accusations that people are making against God. They say they've been regularly worshiping. They've been seeking God daily. They delight to know his will. They love to hear what God wants. They could say things like, I read my Bible every day. I pray all the time. I attend worship regularly, but they're becoming increasingly frustrated because it seems like God is ignoring their worship. He's not treating them fairly. They're fasting. They're keeping the Sabbath. These are acts which are meant to declare dependence upon God and call out to him so that he might answer, and it seems like he's not hearing them. They're longing for him, and he seems to be ignoring them. If this people so delights to know God's will, why is he not listening? Their accusation is that either God's hand is shortened or his ear is deaf, which is to say that he's either not powerful enough or not considerate enough of their cries to hear them and answer them. This is very similar to the accusation against God that we call the problem of evil. 
Why are bad things happening? Either God must not be powerful enough to do what he says he can do or not good enough to do what he ought to do when I ask him to remove pain and evil from my life and from the world. Now, just like this problem of evil actually exposes the heart of the one who makes the accusation, sinners who say, I deserve good and God doesn't seem to be providing it for me, Isaiah says that this accusation from these worshipers actually shows a very rotten condition in their hearts. God calls Isaiah to give an urgent reply to these complaints, and God's accusation against them is that their worship is entirely hypocritical. God says, they seek me daily as if they wanted to know my will. They act as if they wanted to pursue my justice. God replies to them in 59, 1 and 2. It's not his powerlessness or his unkindness of heart, but he says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. How can Isaiah say that worship is false and hypocritical when it looks so good? When nobody else in the worship service would have called that worship false or insincere. Isaiah says, watch them as soon as the worship is over. It's then that you can see that this people who knows exactly how to formally behave when they're worshiping rushes out to engage in sin that denies what their worship declared. Sin that exposes that everything that they had just so proudly said in their worship is clearly false about them. While they're demanding fairness from God, They have no interest in behaving in a way that is just to others. 58, 3 to 5. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and fight, to get your own way, to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Isaiah says that on their fasting days, their behavior reveals that they're being hypocritical. They're very good at rituals of fasting. They've got their sackcloth, they've got their ashes, they've got this reed-like posture of fasting so that everybody knows how humble they are before God. These visible displays are, even in their own mind, evidence that their worship must be sincere. They're looking at themselves and they're saying, look how sincere I'm being. Look how excellent my fasting is. Look what it proves about me. But they're fooling themselves just like they're fooling anyone else. God can see their hearts, even in a way that they're ignoring. That even on the Sabbath day, on the day of fasting, they're consumed with greed and pride. God says their hypocrisy should be clear. Even when your worship looks this good, you should be able to recognize it because look at how you behave as soon as your time of formal worship has ended, as soon as you're finished that specific act that you thought earned you credibility before God. I've done this, I've accomplished it, now it's over and I can go my way and do as I please. They were treating the Sabbath day largely like a holiday. It's a day to kick back and enjoy yourself. That's why God commanded that they need not work. It was like a stat day. But they were missing the real rest that God had given them the Sabbath for. True rest is a cessation of striving 
the end of your work to please God and resting in what God himself has accomplished for you, saving us, even making us holy so that we can rest in him, truly rest by worshiping him. By treating the Sabbath like this day where you get to indulge yourself, you get to be lazy, the people of Judah weren't just missing the point of the Sabbath, but they were acting against its very purpose. After their performance of worship to earn God's favor, they went back to pleasing themselves to the point where they were oppressing others, where they were ruining the purpose of the Sabbath for themselves and for others. This same problem was even more clear on their days of fasting. We see that righteous fasting in scripture was always paired with prayer. It was a, it was a worshipful act so that the worshiper, the one who is praying, could understand their total devotion to God in crying out to him, could better see, could even grow independence towards him. Fasting it gives up. It removes some of those distractions, some of those preoccupations. It reminds us of our idolatry, where we can idolize even good gifts from God, and it lays down things like food so that we can be reminded that God is all we need and that we totally depend upon him and then approach him through that fast in prayer. But if fasting becomes this performance, this ritual by which you earn things from God, then you've totally subverted its meaning. Now fasting is a work that you are accomplishing. It's proof that you don't totally depend upon God, that you can do the things that prove to God how great you're doing. Hey, look, God, I'm so humble. Look, God, watch me show you, watch me accomplish my dependence upon you so that you can be proud of me. Isaiah says that this hypocrisy is clearly exposed when they're not formally worshiping, even on the day of fasting, just like on the Sabbath day. As soon as those performative acts are over, they go back to the behavior that their hearts naturally desire to do, oppressive, wicked, selfish behavior which characterizes their lives whenever they've switched off their performative worship. Employers and masters were exploiting their workers for profit. Men who were very visibly cutting themselves off from worldly goods cutting themselves off from luxury, showing that they don't need these things, would then spend the rest of the day hoarding worldly goods while their neighbors went hungry. They were ignoring poverty, homelessness. They were exploiting servants and workers. They cared nothing for the poor, even while they were trying to demonstrate in their worship that they didn't care about these things that they were greedily hoarding for themselves. Remember, in Judah, this sin isn't just what we would call a social or political injustice. Judah was meant to be God's covenant family. To neglect the poor and needy among them was to neglect those who they were meant to treat as brothers and sisters. Isaiah builds up this picture of their greed and their neglect of others to the point where he says they ignore, they hide themselves from their own flesh. They're ignoring the needs of their physical, actual family, and they're ignoring the needs of their covenant family. Isaiah says that if our acts of worship are clearly denied as soon as that time of worship is over, if the things that we have sung and heard preached and prayed in the worship service are contradicted as soon as we leave the worship service, then we are demonstrating we are demonstrating by our lives outside of our worship that we are clearly lying when we are worshiping. 
It's like someone going to the gym with no interest to be fit, like someone going to college with no interest to learn. Stefan and I were talking about this passage, and he used the word imposters. They're imposters in their worship. It's just virtue signaling, trying to score points with God. Look at how well I'm doing. Look how humble I am. Look how dependent I am. You're saying and doing things that your actions show you clearly do not believe. Isaiah says to these hypocrites, they hatch adder's eggs and weave spider's webs. Who wants their worship compared to snake eggs and spider's webs? This long picture from Isaiah is meant to show that the things that they believe they are producing to gain standing with God are useless at best and poisonous at worst. Worship clothes and cares for others in its dependence upon God. They're trying to clothe people in spider's webs. Worship provides rich eggs to nourish and eat, and they provide poisoned eggs. Their worship, their actions, are no good for God, for themselves, or anybody. They're thinking they're storing up good works and impressing others. But hypocritical worship can only produce what is toxic. Isaiah exposes that when our worship becomes this hypocritical, this performative, we are going to care less and less about what we are singing and praying and hearing. It's not going to reach our hearts at all. We're going to be more interested when we're in church, when we're in our time reading scripture, when we're praying. Our chief interest in those moments is going to be whether or not we're gaining the currency with God that we wanted to get him to do the things that we want from him. I'm here, I'm at church, I hope God sees this next time I need something from him. I'm praying, I hope everybody knows how great I am, how righteous I am, how close God and I ought to be. I'm reading my Bible, God better know that I'm getting this done. And this totally subverts what worship can actually accomplish. You leave your time of worship, you leave your time in the word, not rejoicing in God, not nearer to God, not calling out as he tells us to call out and hearing his promises, but now holding things against him. Your worship increasingly makes you upset with God for everything that he owes you and what you expected him to pay you. Calvin says it is the hypocrites who are most wont to accuse God either of weakness or excessive severity. Isaiah contrasts this performative worship with true worship, which simply declares and delights in God for the things that are real to us our entire lives. It declares what our hearts love every day of the week. He talks about true Sabbath keeping and true fasting. Now, Christians do have some healthy discussion on the appropriate way that we honor the Lord's Day beyond the necessity of being a part of public worship. We do have some healthy discussion about fasting. And I don't know if we need to speak much into the question of the formal observance of fasting or of Sabbath keeping to stress what Isaiah wants us to see here, what we can all agree on, which is that the reality, the true fast, the actual worship that is behind these things is what we are called to every day. Not just formal acts of worship, but a change of heart that affects our entire lives. In Christ, we are meant to live every day in true Sabbath rest. 
And true humble dependence of fasting is meant to be ours all the time. The Holy Spirit works in you, Sabbath rest, and a dependence upon Christ that fills your heart and fills your life. The Holy Spirit works in us uh, a dependence upon him that makes us able to give up even the pleasures of the world that we once idolized, that we once demanded from God, because he works in us a humble dependence on God alone that would happily trade everything in this world for the pearl of great price that is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus has already died and risen to assure us that not just the formal practice, but the heart of rest and total dependence upon God is yours every day. And that is God's desire for you. That we would not just sing, I need thee, oh, I need thee, but we would live knowing that he is all that we need so that we can rest and then humbly pour out ourselves and our entire lives for the glory of the gospel and the good of others. Isaiah 58.6 says, Is not this the fast I choose? Here is fasting. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Ceremonial fasting visibly sets aside worldly goods for a time to draw near to God, but this was only meant to be representative of a true fact, true fast, which is that we who are in Christ can exchange all the world. We can have no love of it, no dependence on it, no desperation for its treasure because we are free in Christ, depend only on him, and that means we can pour ourselves out. Even see all that we have in the world as a gift to pour ourselves out, to glorify him, and to show the gospel to others. This is a fast that you can't switch on or off, that you can't jump into to accomplish so that God will be happy and then jump out of again and continue to live for your pleasures. It's not a good work you get to perform. It has to be a change of heart and a change of life. It is only possible by the regeneration of the spirit and the power of God. The gospel not only frees us from the power of this world's treasures, but it makes us able to see them as things that we can entirely, happily give over to be used as God would have us use them in the way that we treat others. If we have been freed by Christ from slavery to sin, we will hate oppression everywhere we see it. We will not only look forward to the day when Jesus will break all bonds of oppression forever, but we would happily use whatever we have to end it wherever it is within our power. If we who are strangers and aliens have been adopted into the household of God, then we would happily exchange whatever goods we have to feed the hungry and shelter the destitute. We already know that we have the bread of life that eternally nourishes us. We have the household of God and a place made in his eternal kingdom for us. These promises are greater than anything that you can scrape together in this world. And so you would happily trade whatever you have in this world for the blessing of others. Because in this way, we are storing up our treasures in heaven rather than keeping them where moth and rust destroy 
Isaiah sums up this heart of fasting by saying, you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. This is the heart that rests in Christ. This is the fast that God delights in. He isn't necessarily talking about pouring out absolutely everything that you own as much as he's talking about just handing over your whole life. It's very similar to what Paul is saying in Romans when he talks about giving our lives as a living sacrifice. When we hold tight to the eternal promises of Christ, we can pour out everything we are and have in this world for the sake of that gospel. None of this care about things like oppression or physical needs is inconsistent with our greatest desire to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. This is the life that underscores our gospel proclamation because it shows the power of the promises that we have. Just as this is the lifestyle that Isaiah said would naturally underscore their worship because it would demonstrate the reality of the things that they said were true about God. It is because we have eternal treasures in Christ that we can live our lives in a way that clearly demonstrates we are not ruled by greed or miserly selfishness. That is how people will see that our worship does not proceed from a transactional relationship with God, but from our hearts. Clinging to this world's good, disregarding hunger, oppression, homelessness, is going to expose our own lack of confidence in what the gospel has accomplished for us. And our fear that Christ's treasures will not quite be enough to satisfy us, that the gifts of the gospel will not clearly be greater than the things we love in this world. And so we set aside for ourselves just enough to make sure that we are happy here in case the things that the gospel promises prove to be not so great as Jesus said they would be. A failure to love others more than we love our stuff shows a resistance to what the Spirit would work in our hearts. And of course, this is primarily true regarding our family of faith. We cannot care for the needs of every person everywhere. God, in particular, has put certain people into your life whom you can know that you bear a responsibility for, your family, your church family. Just as the people of Judah had a particular obligation to care for people in Judah, above and beyond the needs of Philistines. We know that when someone trusts in Christ, we are united to them. We are brothers and sisters now. And we bear a particular responsibility to each other. Jesus says in the church, we enjoy the first fruits of the eternal promises of his kingdom. The treasures of heaven begin to be offered now in how we love and care for one another. It doesn't mean we stop hating oppression and poverty outside the church. We can care for those needs while our ultimate care for those suffering people is that they would become a part of this family of faith. <laughs> that is how we would most desire to see their oppression broken, their homelessness ended, their hunger satisfied is for them to come and join the family. This is the life-changing, everyday changing power of the gospel. This is the lifestyle that the Spirit works in us before and after and during our times of worship when we declare these things in praise to God. This is the life that demonstrates what our worship declares, that the gospel of Jesus is a treasure and that we would trade all the world for it.
because of the hope we have in him. Even as we gather here now to worship Christ, to declare these things in song and prayer, to sing, I need thee, oh, I need thee, do you believe it? Do you believe that the eternal promises of Jesus in Zion are better and so secure that you would happily give up all that you had in this world for the sake of his kingdom and righteousness? Have you really recognized that the treasures of this world are rubbish compared with his promises? So that you would be prepared to use every gift that he has given you to open your home, to give of your time, to give of all of your treasures for the sake of the growth of his kingdom, the care of his family, the love of others. That is the heart of worship. That is the true fast. That is enjoying real Sabbath rest. And the Savior that we treasure that makes these promises to us, he is not calling us to give these things up without experience. He himself exchanged not just worldly goods, but a heavenly throne to take on poverty. He came down from his throne so that he might, even on the first night of his life, have no bed to lie in and lie in a bed of straw because that is what he gave up for us. Surprise, this is an Advent sermon. You thought I'd forgotten. (laughs) But the manger demonstrates what will be true through Christ's entire life. The setting aside of every treasure that he he could say himself that he is entitled to the king of the world who would have every right to claim all of these things as his own, certainly in the face of such wicked sinners, came not to the king's palace, not to Rome, but to the manger, lived the life of a wanderer so that he might go everywhere he could proclaiming the gospel of salvation and then going straight to the cross where he gave up even his life and endured the wrath of God for us. He was happy even as he wandered to exchange every worldly good and benefit for the sake of demonstrating as he proclaimed the glory of the kingdom of God. He turns five loaves and two fish into food that feeds over 5,000, not just because he needed people to eat their lunch, but because he wanted to tell them, look I am the bread of life, and I am giving over not just loaves of bread, but my body to you, that you might be nourished forever. And then, after he gave his life, he rose again, and he went before us into his kingdom. After having traded all the world, but he wasn't afraid when he went to that cross, that somehow that future would not be true for him. That maybe he might not rise, maybe he might not end up on a throne. He went to the cross because he had a joy clearly set before him. He was entirely, completely confident that he would be king of the world. Lord of the church, husband of his bride, head of his body. And Hebrews tells us that when we exchange the things that this world loves, when we give up 
our desperation for the treasures of the world to depend only on God, to persevere in his promises, then we are following Christ, even following all of the heroes of the faith that came before us, like Abraham and Noah and Moses. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Most of us know that particularly in this pretty affluent culture that we live in now, sermons that confront coveting and clinging to worldly treasures usually lead to this sort of anxious knot in our stomachs. How much are they going to ask me to give up? How much do I have to let go of? We know that messages like these confront a particularly powerful monster that is in the world around us right now. And the world is working really hard to continue to feed that monster. This is also a Black Friday sermon. But this natural pull that we feel to hold so tightly to the world's treasures because we love them so dearly might reveal that we are just secretly afraid that this is all there is. Maybe, the, maybe this is it. And this has always been a danger for God's people. It's not just in rich North America. This has been true since the gospel has been proclaimed. Maybe it's not true. Maybe I just need to make sure that I can enjoy myself enough that if I die and I don't wake up and all of this was false, Nobody would say I was a fool who wasted my time. That is the secret terror that makes our worship hypocritical, that says that God himself is only really a good God if he gets me the stuff that I need now so that I can feel like being a Christian was a good idea, even if God's promises don't turn out to be true. That is the heart that Isaiah wants to expose as he looks at, yes, corrects our oppression the way we've treated others, exposes our hypocritical worship. He wants to see this crisis that maybe we aren't confident in God and his salvation. That that is why we cling so tightly and so desperately to the things of this world. At the end of chapter 59, which as I said, is looking forward to that wonderful revelation of Jesus that we're gonna consider next week, we see where God, where God wanted to bring his people, what he wanted to get them to, what he wanted them to understand. Now, exposing this hypocritical worship, we see God's people in repentance. Let's look at uh, 59 verse nine. What do they see about themselves? Justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan, moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back 
from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Yes, they see that they are oppressors. Yes, they see that their sin is with them all the time. Yes, they see that they're stumbling around. They don't even know the right way to go. Why? Because they're dead. Because they don't have hope. That is repentance. That is recognizing what all of these sins in the ways that we treat others are exposing about our hearts. They recognize now, when I was worshiping, it was just a series of deposits that I was making with God and impressing people, hoping for a good return on them. And then I tried to put God in the dock to see whether or not he was gonna make good by giving me the things that this world loves. By giving me the things that I wanted before I knew him. The worship of God better be a better way for me to get the financial security that I desire, the house that I desire, the family situation I desire. And if it doesn't work, then I'll move on. I'll try another religion. I'll try another way of life. That's how they've been putting God in the dock. And that's been obviously true, looking at their greedy, miserly, oppressive behavior as soon as they leave the worship service. They see this utter hypocrisy in their worship. They, not God, were the ones who didn't understand justice, trying to hold God to account for treating them fairly while they didn't even know what it was to act justly. They, not God, were the ones who were oppressing and despising those that they should have poured themselves out in love to. This is what the problem of evil exposes about our hearts. This is what our complaints to God about whether or not he has kept up his end reveal about what's actually going on in our hearts. This song of lament is a beautiful close to this passage. To be able to see this, to recognize it. It is a sweet lament because God does not leave us in that despair. In the middle of this passage, he has already started to shine a light on the promises that he is making to those who recognize their sin, who repent of it, and who turn to him in true worship that changes their entire lives. We see those promises in 58, 9 to 13, or, or maybe 8 to 13. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, if you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The repentant sinners of chapter 59 see now that they are dead. They're walking blindly. They're living in darkness instead of light. And God assures them, turn, repent, truly worship, and light will dawn. And that light will shine in your hearts and out from you that the entire world could see it. Friends, consider how majestic 
How mind-boggling would be our witness to the gospel if the church would humble ourselves before God and hold all the stuff and material of this world with a truly open hand. How brightly we would shine. What a testimony would be, we would be to the power of the Holy Spirit if we were this eager to use all the gifts of the world to serve and bless our church and even those neighbors who we share the gospel with, what a visible display that would be of the gospel we proclaim. God says, if his people turn, turn to the true heart of Sabbath keeping and fasting, then he will care for them, heal them, providing for them and lifting them up. Now he is talking here about restoring Jerusalem for those who have suffered exile and disgrace, but he's not suddenly turning back to propose a better transactional relationship of worship. If you get fasting right, then I'll start taking care of you. If you get the Sabbath right, then I'll start taking care of you. We can see some of these promises are made in the midst of their suffering, their lives in scorched places. God is making eternal promises of an eternal city, of nourishment, of rest in him forever. But here God is reminding us now to put ourselves entirely in his hands because we have hope in those eternal promises. Those promises that bondage will be broken, that we will forever rest in his house. To rest in those promises is to set aside these worldly treasures that we have idolized and fully trust in him and his promises. Instead of judging whether or not he's given us enough of what we want here, we can rest knowing that he has secured for us more than we can ever imagine. A new heavens and a new earth, an eternal city, all the pleasure of Eden, citizenship in Zion. This is the hope that you have as you happily hand over all the world. At the heart of this is God's promise that he makes to you right now. If you give up your love of worldly treasures, if you stop ignoring the needs of others, then you shall take delight in the Lord. That is the great immediate promise that he makes to us. Because we're trading our delight in stuff, our delight in what we loved before we knew the Lord, for a dependence entirely on him. And that is the greatest gift that he offers us today. Lose that anxiety of depending on all the things that you're clinging to in this world and delight that God is yours. And that means every promise in the universe is yours. Then we can exchange greed and oppression and cruelty and selfishness for confident, joyful, humbly resting in God's promises because we have him now. Don't forget, when you are anxious over these warnings of how we've loved the world and hated our neighbor, God is warning you of the futility of your idols because one day they will drag you to hell. But along with this, he is offering you better promises, sweet, eternal promises in Christ. He's promising you today a rest and delight that can come only from himself. He's exhorting you, let go of this world you are clinging to. Happily pour it out for the oppressed, for the hungry. Not to prove what a good person you are. Not because a monastic life pleases God and earns things before him. No, 
because you are trading anxiety and greed and sin for rest and delight and hope in Jesus? Is your worship feeling shallow? Is it feeling transactional? Is it feeling forced? Is there no delight in it? Is there even frustration with God arising from it? Maybe you need to see how much you love this world, how much you love your stuff. Maybe you need to see how that has changed your relationship with God just as it's ruined your relationship with your neighbor. Maybe you can see in the way that you have treated your neighbors, even your brothers and sisters, that you're exposed as an imposter or a hypocrite. So repent. Walk in humility. Trade your dependence upon the things of this world for a dependence entirely upon your older brother, Jesus Christ, who already gave up the whole world and even his life to bear the punishment for your sins so that you might have these eternal promises and then walk in humility and rest and delight in God your Father and in Jesus Christ and the eternal promises that he has made as you enjoy the dawning of the light of eternity in your heart even today and the hope that you have in that eternal, shining, bright day with God forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word today is meant to bring us for repent, to repentance for our love of the world. And we know that this is so central to our sanctification, that this idol clings so closely. It is so nearby to all of our hearts. So Father, I pray that we would happily pour ourselves out for the hungry to break the bonds of the oppressor, not because we're people who are proud of doing good works, who want to show off how incredible we are, but because we have let go of our miserly dependence upon the things of this world and have depended entirely upon you, hope only in the gospel, and are so fully assured in it and so fully delighted by you that we recognize now how the gospel shines like a pearl of great price in the face of all the rubbish that this world is trying to promise us. And I pray that as we repent of that, Father, that you would save some from the clutches of this world so that they would trust only in Christ and rest in him. And that for those who rest in him now, that we would rest all the more, delight all the more, happily hand over all of the things that this world sees as indispensable treasures because we know the hope that is absolutely surely ours in Jesus. And may we praise and worship honestly and happily and clearly without hypocrisy because the things that we sing are the true delight of our hearts every day of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.